Welcome to Go Behind the Ballot, a podcast where two Texas moms go on an educational quest to demystify Texas politics. Join me, Nicole Abshire, and my co-host, Claire Campos O'Neill, as we deep dive into the most burning issues, hear stories from candidates, and offer hope in these challenging political times. Let's saddle up and go behind the ballot. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Go Behind the Ballot. I am Claire Campos O'Neill. And I am Nicole Abshire. And we are so happy to have you here with us today. In this episode, we interview Dr. Michelle Gutierrez-Cohen, and she talked to us all about county commissioner's court. She is currently on the ballot for the November 2022 election in Hayes County. She is running for county commissioner for Precinct 2, and she is a wonderful candidate. She was inspired to run by her community involvement, and she saw real need for her to jump into the race. And we had a great conversation with her. What was so impressive about Michelle was that she is a working mom. She's a candidate. She started this organization called, oh, I want to make sure I get this right, Hayes Latinos United. And she's just a problem solver. She gets so much done because she cares and she knows how important it is to have people in our elected positions that reflect the communities they're trying to represent. So, Nicole, what are you still thinking about after chat with Michelle. I'm thinking about how if you don't live in Hayes County, you might think, oh, maybe I don't need to listen to this episode. But that is not true. Because she gives us so much information in general about the way the commissioner's court works, the structure of it, which I had no idea. I didn't know about staggered terms. I didn't know there was a county judge. Just all of the things are that little background information to understand why it's such an important role and how it actually works. So it applies whether you live in Hayes County and have the opportunity to vote for her or not, there's more general information than just her specific race. So everybody can find something in this one. Yes. If you live in Texas, you live in a Texas county and you have a county's commissioner court. So you should be aware of these folks and what they're doing and vote for them when they come up on your ballot. And I think that's about it. Check out the show. Hi, everyone. Thank you so much for joining us for this episode of Go Behind the Ballot. We are very excited to have Dr. Michelle Gutierrez-Cohen with us. She is running for county commissioner in Hayes County for Precinct 2. And we are eager to learn a lot about what county commissioners do, because we're still a little unclear ourselves, and about her journey and all those interesting facets of who makes Michelle. So to get us started, Michelle, we love to find out a little bit about our guests' biographies and their origin stories. So can you tell us, are you from Texas and what was your upbringing? Of course, thank you, Claire and Nicole, for having me. I'm always excited to talk about the campaign and my journey because it's a long one. But yes, I was born in Austin. I'm one of the originals and my family lived in South Austin. My mother, she was 17 when she had me. So she dropped out of school to raise me. So she was a young mom. She has an interesting story herself. She was 17 when she had me. A year later, she had another child, my sister. She was married and my father was in a really bad car accident at 19. He was like 21 in the Marines and he was quadriplegic. So She's 19, taking care of a quadriplegic, 
and two small children. Can you imagine? A lot of my own, like, I think work ethic comes from my mother. I've seen her work really hard as a young woman, even though I didn't really realize it at the time. Now I can understand. Working hard for her children. I'm the oldest of four. So I had a lot of responsibility at a young age of taking care of my siblings and helping my parents out. And my biological father and my mother eventually divorced because it was just too much. But she remarried. So interesting because it was I was so young when everything happened back then that I didn't know he was not my real father. I went to grade school and then I was told this man is not your real father. This other man is. And, and I remember having to change my last name from Pena to Gutierrez. When I was in first grade, my upbringing comes from a very strong female upbringing. So I have a lot of aunts growing up and they were always the leaders in my family, always. And, and they still are. My mom's still basically the leader. We actually moved to Hayes County back in the 80s. They bought a piece of land and they split it three ways. My grandparents in the front, an aunt and uncle in the middle, and my parents in the back. So we grew up on this somewhat of a compound with my family so we could all be together because that was very important that family stays together and we look after each other. And my family is still there today. They still live on the same piece of property. My aunt and uncle still live there. My grandparents have passed. So that house is no longer there, but my family's still there. I grew up in Hayes County and I spent about probably combined 30 years in Hayes County. And my youngest goes to school here at a local middle school. So I have a lot of deep roots. So I've definitely seen this county grow immensely over those 30 years. I remember when there was nothing here. And so it's amazing to see how much it's grown. But as far as my work background, I spent about 25 years in supply management in the private and public sector. I was a state purchaser, contract manager. So most of my career has been in that role. So I have an understanding of some RFPs and RFQs and, and that whole that concept. Oh, Michelle, what are RFPs and RFQs? <laughs> <laughs> we press proposal, we press for code. Things that, that it's like a procurement terminology that, that you would have to use. So I have a lot of experience in that. But today, I'm a trainer with the state. So I teach virtual classes to other state employees and they're virtual now because of the pandemic. And we used to teach them in person. And then when the pandemic hit, we switched to virtual. So now it's worked so well that all my classes are virtual now. What else? As far as my education, what's interesting is when I got a high school back in 89, <laughs> I went to school for a while. I stopped, went to school, but I was working at the same time. So I never quite finished my schooling when I was young. And when I was 40, I had my like my late baby and she just gave me this motivation to go back to school. It's hard to explain, but all those dreams I had as a young woman that I, that I wanted to do all came back. And I decided to go back to school. So two months after she was born, I enrolled in an online college and got my bachelor's in business administration. With a two-month-old, with a concentration of finance, I immediately went and got my MBA. And then I think I had, they made me wait six months, but then I got enrolled into the doctorate program and I did that. So I received my doctorate in 2019 and a doctorate in management and organizational leadership because I have a fascination with leadership. I haven't necessarily been in leadership roles necessarily my life, but I've always been a follower. 
I've always just been interested in leadership. You're the oldest. Of course you're a leader. <laughs> you could call that leadership, but I didn't know it at the time. I was told you take care of your siblings, you walk them to school, you make lunch, you make dinner. That was my role. But at the time, I didn't see it that way. But I've always kept this like feeling of obligation and responsibility. And I think that's where that comes from. Yeah. It sounds like it was very rooted in your family dynamic. And what you witnessed, but maybe didn't identify with that terminology. Like how Claire just pointed out, you were always a leader, but you maybe didn't think of it that way. And so that's so interesting. Yeah, I was doing what I was told. And that's the way it was. Yeah. So family is was very important growing up. And it still is today. I'm all about family and more about community now. Trying to take care of other people who don't have. Because we, we were poor growing up. We didn't have a lot. We got our school clothes from Goodwill. That's the life. But at the time when you're a kid, you don't notice that. Because I think just so much love in the family, that stuff doesn't really matter or you don't notice it. Maybe that's where you are. Economically, that's where you are. But we were happy as a family. Yeah. I had this thought last night as I was getting my boys ready. They're almost two and five. And I was like, oh, this is so hard. And I'm 37. And I was like, how do teen moms do this? Like, seriously, how do they do this? And it's just amazing. Like, I'm sure lots of moms just figure it out and go the next day and the next day. Man, kudos to your mom. I know. I can't imagine. But I think that a lot of women would be able to do it because they have to. There's no other choice. What helps me a lot sometimes when I feel a little overwhelmed is everything's like a checkbox for me. Okay, I got to check. I took a shower. Everything. Is that the management side of you? Mentally, that just feels better for me. I like just getting up and getting dressed. Okay, that's done. Now let's make lunch. Let's get making up for school. That's just how my, but it helps me. It helps me that way to do that. So I also love that you did most of your secondary schooling over the age of 40. I just want to like really underline that too. That's incredible and amazing. And a reminder to all of us that you don't have to stop dreaming and you can keep going and do whatever it is that you're interested in at any age. That's why I tell other women who are thinking about going back to school, but they feel like they're too old. I'm like, I went back when I was 40 years old. It's never too late to go back at education. And, and I know what this means. I know what maybe 7% women of Latinos in our country are, have a doctorate degree. And so when you break that down by how many women have, it's, I think, maybe 3 to 4%. And then when you look at Latinas who have a doctorate degree in tech, it's probably not even 1%. So... I understand the responsibility that this carries. And I think that when I was defending my dissertation, the three things I told my committee I was going to do is run for office. I was going to start a Latina leadership organization, and I was going to share my findings is what I was going to do. Basically, I've done all that. The organization was not quite what I had imagined because it's, about health, and it's about protecting communities of color from COVID. That wasn't the organization I had in mind, but we've done so much as an organization that I'm so proud of the work, but I've done it. When I meet other young women, Latinas, and they hear I'm a doctorate, and they ask questions like, was it hard? I'm afraid to go. I don't know if I can go that far. And so I want to be an example for them that it's never too late, that we need you to go as high as you can in your, your academics, because my experience is 
with work and school and trying to get new positions or whatever I was applying for, it was either you had the experience, but not enough school, or you had the school, but not enough experience. So it was never enough. You really have to advocate. Like I have to advocate for myself every day. Even today, after everything that I have accomplished, I still have to advocate for myself. I still have to prove myself. I'm not so much proving anymore because I'm like, I've done it either with me or not. But I do have to advocate for myself. And that's been a lot of this race personally is still advocating during this race. Why do you think that is? Do you think it's because we don't see people like you in these positions? So they question like, I haven't seen like, how is she going to be the leader that we need when I haven't seen a leader like her before? Yeah, I think is part of it, Claire. But I also think that the Latina voice is very misunderstood. We speak with passion and excitement and it comes sometimes it makes people uncomfortable. And so I think that should be a whole nother podcast, understanding the Latina voice and don't be afraid of it. And we can generalize that even broader to women of color. Like a lot, Black women are accused of that too, of being angry. That's the label. Yeah. I think through that, and I thought this is, I mean, just history and years and years of suppression that women of color have had that's just passed on. And so I think the mainstream is not used to that voice. They don't understand it. They're afraid of it. They try and push it away, but that's us. That's who we are. We're done. I'm done with all the oppression and you're not enough. Or And that's where I am in my life. Being 51, I figured out that I'm not afraid to really say, which now I understand my grandparents saying the things that they would say, <laughs> because you get to a point in your life where I don't really care if you don't like what I had to say. This is me and this is who I am. And it's been hard, even though the media keeps talking about Latinas on both sides, Republican and Democrat, leading the charge in Texas, which is why we see a lot of Latina candidates on the Republican side, I think, is they see that too. And so they've been recruiting. I mean, even that's the narrative. It's still not what's actually happening on the ground for us candidates, for of Latina candidates. We're still basically underestimated. We're underfunded. We don't sometimes have the establishment support things like that. And so, so that's some of the what I had faced during this campaign was that. Like I knew why I was doing this. I knew why I was running. I knew how important it is and I'm doing it for the right reasons. So I was just, again, just advocating for myself, showing up for the community. And like I tell others, I didn't wait for an election to start doing something for my community. I've been doing it. I'm not just, oh, I'm just gonna run and see what happens. No, I ran because of the pandemic. I really had seen the disparity that happened in our county with the COVID. And I knew that our, I say our people, the Latino community was being hurt the most hit during the pandemic, which is why the organization was formed, because we were not seeing organized efforts to protect the communities of color. And which is we started doing free PE and we did COVID testing and now we do COVID vaccines and communities of color and rural areas of the county. That's the work that I put my heart into and the people that I want to fight for. So I know I'm doing this for the right reasons. Michelle, can you talk about how that happened? Like you say that you could see what was happening around you. Can you like really dig into what that looked like? When the pandemic was first happening, I'm a researcher by heart. I'm always looking at the data. And on the national level, I was hearing stories of communities of color being the hardest hit by COVID. 
And so I started looking at my own county and they were not publishing the demographics of who was getting COVID. They were not publishing. And so I wrote letters and eventually they said, okay. And so they released it. And sure enough, it was exactly what I suspected that Latinos were leading in every category related to COVID. Positivity rates, hospitalizations, death, confirmed cases, all of them. And so from that anger where I just started buying masks myself and hanging out at the COVID testing sites in the county and passing out free masks to people. At that time, people were losing their jobs, right? They were being forced to stay home. So there was all kinds of food insecurities, rent insecurity. I don't know if you remember the food distribution drives that were happening. There was a lot going on at that time. So the fact that people, our governments or our cities were not providing a basic resource that could save their life, I couldn't deal with that. And I just got together with some other individuals and I said, let's do this. Let's have a free drive through PPE and we'll just give out what we can. And that's how it started. So when people say, oh, tell me about Hayes Latinos United, I'm like, oh, okay. It was founded as a direct response to the racial disparities of COVID against the Latino community in Hayes County. That's my spiel to them. They're like, oh. And it's always funny because I'm like, do you only do Latinos? I'm like, oh no, I said, that's just how it was founded. Because of that, we give anybody who wants any of our resources, any of it. So that's how our org started. But it was through that work where, you know, when the vaccines rolled out, those communities of the lower economic level could not access those vaccines. And I was making calls at night with other health resources saying, how many shots can you give? And they say, oh, so we got 10. Okay, let me call 10 people. That kind of work was going on behind the scenes to try and get the underserved and the uninsured those vaccines to save their life. And because I knew that's who was impacting the most. And so it's sometimes I forget what it was like back then. When I see documentaries, I sometimes I have PTSD over it because it was really a horrible time. And so much of our community was in despair and loss and stress. I heard about it all the time. And I was getting phone calls from families who lost loved ones. Do you remember all the GoFundMe accounts that we saw? Because people couldn't afford it. And we did a lot of work that I'm really proud of, but it really showed me the lack of resources for our own county health department. They did not have those resources. Yeah. It sounds like you created this group because the county wasn't doing these things. What was their excuse for not doing that? A lot of it was just, I think they were just understaffed, under-resourced. But now today we do have a relationship with the Hayes County Health Department. And there's some individuals that are young individuals that are in that department right now who are actively doing community outreach and providing information, vaccines, but they are still lacking. They were hoping to get a mobile unit clinic to drive around. They didn't get funding for that. They didn't get more money for staff. So they're severely under-resourced still. So we partner a lot together to help with that. Can we talk about that resource component? So like you're running to be a county commissioner. How is the county's budget collected? Or how does the county get that bucket of money that they spend on things like what would have been healthcare. Yeah, some funds from taxes, right? And they just passed their budget this year. But I know that they they just approved their budget, but like our health department didn't get the fundings that they were asking for. They mostly supported the law enforcement. And it's really, I think, just tricky during election time. I think funding goes to what people seem to be caring about the most, which is law enforcement. I totally understand that. I fully support 
law enforcement. In fact, I'm in a police academy right now at the city of Kyle. So I can understand more about the law enforcement. But unfortunately, our health department did not get the funding that they needed. And we are in front of a potential another COVID spike in the fall. And what I just don't understand is that it really begins with the health of people. Because what the pandemic taught us is that if they don't have their health, then they can't work. They can't visit your restaurants, your stores, because they didn't have that. So my logical thinking is, why not put as much resources as we can into our health department and get people access to vaccines, flu shots, PE, anything to help them feel well so they can continue working, so they can continue visiting businesses because it's all related and they don't think that way. So that's where like one of my top priorities is public health, is making sure that we get resources to people. Right now, if you're uninsured, you can't get a free PCR test anymore. And if your child is sick at school with COVID, they can't go back to school unless they have a PCR test. PCR test is $100 usually. And they may not be able to afford that. And if they need a COVID test for one student, they're probably one family member, they're probably going to need it for additional ones. And so it's either a PCR test or they have to be out of school five days with no symptoms. Who's going to stay home with a kid? (laughs) Then there's five days where that child is not in school, is not learning because of this requirement. So there's some real breakdowns in healthcare that I really want to address. And unfortunately, a lot of our our Hayes CISD district is not very pro-health. They are against the mask mandates. They only held one vaccine event in the entire pandemic. And it's just been hard to work with them. And what upsets me is that their student population is over 64% Latino. And that is the group that's suffering the most. Again, why not do these things? Why not do PE? Why not do more vaccine clinics within your schools? It makes sense to me, but unfortunately it's that political climate of ours that is hindering health access to people. What a shame because, yeah, the schools are where people are already there. They trust the schools, they're familiar with it. It's just a perfect place. And that brings up another thing is when we were trying to do COVID vaccines on the east side, because that is where our rural areas are, our communities of color are, there is no community infrastructure on the east side. And the schools would not let us inside their school to have a clinic. You can point fingers at who said what, but it was a safety coordinator who would not let us in the school. And they said, we got it covered. We don't even have a library east of I-35 from the top of the county to the bottom. There's no library. There's no community infrastructure. So I have to rely on little venues like that hold quinceaneras and weddings and small gatherings of people to provide health care to folks. And sometimes we'll just work in a park and do a drive through There have been select schools that have allowed us to do PE and food and water distributions at that level, but we've never been able to actually gain access inside the building to provide vaccines to folks. It's a struggle, but one thing to say is I'm a problem solver and I never give up. And if you tell me no this way, I'm just going over here. And I just work in the problem until I find a solution. And I think that I'm going to take that same kind of like problem solving energy to the county court. Can you lay out for us what the duties are of the county commissioner's court? 
So there's a lot. And actually, when I, in my race, talking to people, a lot of them said, I don't even know what a county commissioner does. Yeah, I think that's pretty common. It's not something I'm proud of, but I definitely... Yeah, and I understand that because, and I don't know if that's by design to keep them in the dark. Maybe, I don't know. So one thing is public health. They're in charge of the public health because they have a health department and law enforcement. So they're in charge of the sheriff's department. They pass the budget. They approve all the contracts, like construction contracts or any contract work that a vendor does with the county. The commissioner's court approves that. They decide on where voting locations are located. Okay, that's always been an issue because we can never get enough voting locations or polling locations on the east side of the county because we don't have infrastructure there. All makes sense. And so they approve that roads is a big one. Anything that's not within the city limits, all the roads on the outside of the city limits, they approve those construction projects for that. And east side of the county has been severely neglected as far as roads. So they're now coming in and trying to make the roads bigger. But because we've been so heavily populated all of a sudden in the last 10 years, so we now we have all these people that live in these areas that they're trying to fix the roads. It's just causing more of a headache now. And I don't know how they're going to do it personally, because there's so much traffic on the east side and the housing market has exploded, exploded, especially in Buda on the east side. I don't know if you're familiar with Sunfield, but they have over 5,000 homes just in that one subdivision in Buda. And there's only about one or two ways in and out of that place. I know they're working on it, but you can go drop, now drive to the east side and see all these blocks of detours. And if you talk to people that live on the east side, that's the one thing they talk about are the roads and how long it takes to get to work because most of our population that lives here still works in Austin. And so they moved to Hayes County because the housing was cheaper because it's too expensive to live in Austin. So they moved to Hayes County. Buda and Kyle are still close enough to Austin where it's not too big of an inconvenience. But if you watch the news and you watch the traffic, I mean, it's anything coming out of Kyle Buda, it's like over an hour just to get out of Kyle and Buda just to get to Austin. And yeah, it's traffic is, I would say, is probably the number one thing issue for most people. Also in, in Buda, we only have one HEB and one Walmart that people could go to for groceries. They're not that big, honestly. And so when you think about all the people that have moved in on the east side, and then again, all the people who still live are living on the west side, flooding to one, one, two places for food. It'll be interesting to see how we get out of this with folks. But that's really a lot of what the commissioners does. I've heard from another commissioner that the county commissioner's seat is one of those jobs where you're not going to know exactly everything there is to know about being a county commissioner. It's like a learn on the job as you go through it, because there is a lot. You got facts, you got health, you have law enforcement, you have voting. That's a lot of areas that a county commissioner has to know about. And me being a state purchaser, I know about procurement. I know about contracts. And in being in, in this recent health area, I know about that. But I know about working with the health department and, and some of the struggles that they have. I know about voting because I was a precinct chair fighting for polling locations on the east side. So I may not know everything that there is about being a county commissioner, but I feel like I'm going in with enough knowledge to make a difference. 
And I'm not afraid to research and learn and listen to the experts about the issues of our county. I'm just afraid we're going to elect someone who's just going to sit there and not fight and uh, take it for granted, the position for granted. I'm going there to work. A lot of times candidates who are elected office are only thinking about the next election and not what needs to be done right now. Other thing, Michelle, I keep thinking about is, first of all, your deep interest and commitment to leadership. And like if I was thinking about kind of these problems that you have been outlining for us and the idea that if we assume best intentions that the people who have been in those positions have been doing the best that they can. And I do believe in assuming best intentions, but if they don't represent a wide variety of the people that are in the county, then maybe they weren't really aware of the issues with COVID disproportionately affecting minority communities. And maybe they weren't aware of the lack of infrastructure on the east side because that's not a community that they're necessarily enmeshed in. So if we assume best intentions, I think that what you though really highlight is how leadership does need to be reflective of the population so that everyone's interests truly are being represented and that there is somebody who is accountable to all the folks. Because if nothing else, what you're going to bring is a perspective that either isn't there or is being ignored right now. And that's just so necessary to bring some balance. And also, I just cannot help but point out that how if you are present on the commissioner's court, that everybody benefits. It isn't just the Latino community that would benefit from the perspective that you're going to bring. That's an East Side benefit. That's a full Hayes County benefit. Like everyone will receive some of what is so important about what you bring. Sometimes if elected, I will be commissioner of a specific precinct. And it's one of the smaller ones, but it encompasses two of the, one of the fastest growing cities in the county, Kyle and Buda. And sometimes when you're running in these elections, there's a lot of focus on countywide seats. And I'm not a countywide seat. I'm just a precinct seat. But my vote is going to matter on that court countywide. I don't know if people see it that way or not. Yeah, my county is like this small on the map, but my vote is going to have an impact on what happens with our county. And also your voice, just the way you're going to bring different perspective to the conversation it is that has an impact. And I've always said that I'm going to be more of an in-your-face kind of commissioner because I can tell you that all the time that I've lived here, I've never seen a commissioner connect with the community, do town halls with the community, talk to constituents. I've never seen them. Yeah. Why do you think that's the case? I think they're afraid, honestly, because not all conversations are going to be pleasant. And there's a lot of folks that live here that are frustrated. And so I think sometimes they're afraid to face that, but I'm not, honestly. And I want to be more present going to HOA meetings or going to PTA meetings, doing town halls in these areas that don't ever get elected official to come into. I want to be there. And what's great is that most of the people who who live in my precinct know who I am because of the work that I've been doing. And they know that Michelle's in it. Our precinct is over 50% Latino. And we've never had a Latina in this precinct ever. And we haven't had a Democrat in this seat for over a decade. Me being in this seat is going to be a real true representation 
of the people who live here. And I'm what they call homegrown. I'm from here. I went to school here. I know what the issues are here. So I'm excited. I'm nervous, but I'm excited about it. Even today, this morning, when I went to go vote, I was filled with such nerves. And uh, it's my third time voting for myself this year. But I was just super excited to vote and get to this point because it's been a long year, ladies. I will tell you, it's been a long year with the primary and then a primary runoff and then getting ready for the general. So I'm ready. I'm at this point. I'm ready. I think everything that I've been through in my life has prepared me for this. I truly believe that all those shortfalls or those barriers that I had to fight through is for this reason. Yeah. And even if this isn't the next step, which hopefully it is, because it sounds like you would be a great fit. Other doors will be open that never would have been open because you're like, I'm going to try it and put my name on the ballot and do this courageous act because you really do want to influence your community. But who knows what else could happen if it's not that direct seat that you're going for? Yeah, everything happens for a reason. I really believe that. I was, before I decided to run, I was in precinct one and then they did the redistricting and the redistricting actually drew me into two, like by a block. And they happened, this seat happened to be coming up for re-election. And so I thought, maybe that's a sign. Maybe that's what was supposed to happen. So I always joke and I thank the Republican Lon Shell Commissioner for redistrict, redrawing the district for allowing me the opportunity to run for this office. So I do think there's a little bit, things happen for a reason. I do believe that it has to be the right position and the right time sometimes for a candidate. And This position really just keeps me close to community, which is who I care about the most. And that's why I feel like everything's just aligned in this journey. And so I'm really hopeful on the outcome. Two more weeks is what we got. So I'm ready. Yes. For our listeners, this episode will drop the day before Election Day. So when you hear this, go vote and you'll have one more chance to vote. Just keep that in mind. Because one thing that I maybe some people understand this innately, but which is the structure of the commissioner's court. So that's something I don't necessarily understand. And I had the understanding that there was one county commissioner and that that's how it worked. So can we talk about that? Just the structure? Yeah, I wanted to circle back to that. And you said that there's some, it sounds like at large precincts, like, yeah, how does that? There's four county commissioners, each have their own designated precincts. So there's four precincts and then a county judge. So right now the party breakout is three to two, uh, Republicans three, and then our county judge is a Democrat, and then we have another Democrat county commissioner who's been there a very long time. So if I win and our county judge wins, then it's the first time we've had a Democrat majority in a very long time, if we ever had, I don't even know. So that's exciting. We do have another person running, a Susan Cook, who is running as an independent against a Republican. If she wins, then it's the first time we've ever had a woman majority on the county court. So that's exciting to think about, too, as well. So every county has four broken out by population and and one county judge. Every county in Texas has four. Oh, that's crazy because, like, we live in Travis County and it's huge and you still only get four plus the county judge. It's like the high-level mayor of the county, the executive director of the county. They basically run the commissioner's court. They have a vote on the issues that come up. So they're basically just managing basically the whole courtroom. And they cast their vote and they bring up initiatives. Our judge has done a really great job 
over the last four years, bringing the minority community in and getting them more involved. And so he's done an awesome job. And he's our first Hispanic county judge, I think, here in Hayes that we've ever had. So it's good to see for constituents to see someone in that role that looks like you. But that's basically his role there. Oh, yeah. I was just going to say, just it's so important to see people that look like you because like I'll look at people's campaign websites and I'm like, yeah, he looks like a mayor or whatever. And I'm like, this is just based off of a picture. I have no idea who this person is, but it's that image we have, which can be our downfall because we end up with the same kinds of people who maybe don't want to solve problems. And that's terrible. But yes, that was my thought. I may not look the mold like a county commissioner. That's just lack of true representation. I'm excited to be part of this race and yeah, ready for the results. <laughs> okay, so my next question to you about, so we were talking about the structure, is every position open during every election? Like how long are the terms? Four years. Four years, which is really good. Unlike state house, it's like every two years and Congress every two years. So they only run every four years. And same with the county judge as well. Yeah, that's what I'm guessing. Yeah, it's staggered. Like this year, it's only a county judge, precinct two, and precinct four. So the next time it's going to be one and three. Yeah, yeah. so they're all staggered out. That's basically how it runs. Yes. Something I thought about when you were talking about Kyle and Buda and the boom in the population there and the growth and the new development, does the county commissioner's court have, say, jurisdiction over that kind of stuff over development? They do partially within the city limits, then it's a little different, but they do have it. If it's outside that, then they do have some role in that as well. What's interesting is a lot of people don't understand where their lines begin and their line ends between the city and the county. But like I said, that it may be by design, but so they don't know who to complain to. I think the first person they think of is complaining to the city, but then if it's outside the city limits, then it's not a city problem. It's a county problem. And they don't really know who to talk to at that point, which is like during my time in the last few years, like I've always said, you know what, if you have a complaint and you don't know who to talk to, call me and I will help you write your letter because it, I've discovered it just, you write a letter and you get a response. <laughs> and so I'm always offering to help folks who are really not familiar with voicing their concerns or they just mumble it to themselves. But so I'm a big advocate of like, you need help complaining to your elected officials contact me, I'll help you. Creating a template or get you an email address or helping you, I'll help you because they don't know. They don't know who to talk to. And that's unfortunate. But again, I think it's by design. (laughs) Yes. I have a personal story about that. So I live in Travis County, like I was mentioning, but I'm outside the Austin city limits. I'm in like an ETJ. Again, very confusing. One night, there was this really loud music going on. There was some rave venue and they were like, we're going to party all night long. So like four in the morning, you're still hearing this music. And I call the police because I'm like, I don't know. And I was like, can you maybe like go tell them to turn it down? And he's like, you actually live in the county and we don't have noise ordinances in the county. And I was like, so I'm just stuck not sleeping. And like everyone in the neighborhood was feeling this frustration, but that's how it is. And again, who knew that counties don't, maybe they can't put that in place. I don't know. But this one hadn't. And we just had to deal with it. Probably it would be the sheriff's department. Since the county commissioners are over the sheriff's department, they approve their budgets and approve their positions and things like that. That would be the people that probably would come out are those individuals. Yeah. Someone said something to this venue because I haven't heard it since, but I'm like, come on, let's be good neighbors. I learned a lesson that night. (laughs) 
I'm not in the city. Two, it sounds like maybe this is really complex and it's kind of issue by issue, but the relationship then between the city and the county, is it very just dependent on what the issue is? Yes, but I would say they mostly work very well together. I've really been working with the city of Kyle for a long time already. And so I know we need them to work together. For example, there's a bond on Kyle's ballot to fix a lot of the east side roads, which is in my precinct. And But they're roundabouts. And so I'm having mixed feelings on roundabouts. But because we have very few roads coming out of the east side to get to 35, I suspect we're probably going to, it's going to cause a lot of delay and a lot of upset people. And so if I win, they're going to call me to complain about the roads. And I'm going to have to say that's the city's roads. And so I've already talked to the some of the city council members and I said, you guys, we need to develop a very clear strategic plan to work together on these projects if it passes. Because I know if I'm elected that I will get the phone calls about why is it taking why is this road closed? Why is it taking me an additional 15 minutes to get out of my neighborhood? Those things. So we need to work together to figure out a strategic logical plan for this because I know that's coming. So it's important for us to work with the cities. For me it's Kyle and Buda because those are the two cities that will be in this precinct. And I truly believe in the partnership and the collaboration because that's how I run my organization. I wouldn't have gotten as far as I have without that. So uh, I am a big advocate of working with the cities. Let's work together on our issues and let's develop plans that make sense. Let's push communication. Just not one town hall at your city hall. Let's get out into the community that it's impacting the most. And even if that means we have to go door to door, leave a flyer or talk to, we do. That's what we do just to give them a heads up. Because a lot, a lot of times you hear them say, we didn't know this was happening. We, we didn't know that these roads were closing. And who was supposed to tell us? And there's a lot of that happens. So we need to work together in our issues, even if they're not directly impacting the county, it's still going to impact us, at least me as county commissioner at some point. Again, call for more town halls so that you're talking to the community, they're talking to you. And if everyone can't be there, maybe that person can tell their neighbor, just so you know, heads up, traffic's going to be really bad the next couple of months. That's what I was saying in English and Spanish. Yes, that would be so great. Even just explaining to people things like, when I was asking you what was the county's excuse or their reasoning for not providing better health care. Maybe it is a simple answer of we don't have the money. We would love to do this, but we can't financially make it happen. Explain that to people. I think that's what they probably tell you. Maybe they don't want to say that. I think they should. Be honest with us. Let us know. Like, what challenges are you up against? That's where we would reach out to our state reps and our congressional. I did that all the time with our rep, Erin Zwiener. She was very involved in what we we're doing. She donated masks and sanitizer to us to do what she could from her office. And I've built these relationships through this pandemic. And I know who I can call and who can provide me resources. And so I've been fortunate to have that. And so I figure we're going to continue to do that kind of work together going forward. But it does take all of us, regardless of party, however you feel, it does take all of us working together to get stuff done. And so I always said, if I'm on that court, my party affiliation drops. I'm not going to let that guide my decisions. It's about what's best for the constituents and what they want. But I'm going to work hard. I know that. I think this is what I was meant to do right now. <laughs> so 
I'm excited. And I love it. And we need problem solvers. It makes me think, Nicole, we had an interview with Claire Barnett and Stephanie Phillips from Blue Horizon. They're an organization that helps train people running for state representative in very rural red areas. And I was like, what do people just want at the end of the day? Any office, Claire, let's clarify, but in rural communities. Yeah. Oh, thank you. (laughs) Yeah. But I was like, what do people really want from their elected officials at the end of the day? And they're like, they just want problem solvers. They just want people to go in and handle government issues. And it's so true because that's why they're there. And yet too often we get people who don't really do that or who make up problems that aren't even there. And it's like, please just handle this. I got enough going on in my life where I don't want to worry about it. Yeah. Solved quite a few problems over my life. I think that's, I always tell my kids, mommy's a problem solver. Whatever our issue is, we can fix it. So yeah, I'm going to take that same energy to the court and do my work there. So that's the plan. Great. Nicole, do you have any things? I feel like I always have the same reaction to every conversation we have, which is just how much I've learned, how inspired I feel. So thank you, Michelle. This is a great way to start the week, which is just like on fire for problem-solving candidates who are here to let us know what the job is and how they plan to tackle the parts of it. So I just feel super inspired and grateful for your time. My goodness. And now I understand some things that I did not understand before. Understand our struggles. (laughs) Yes. Okay. I have one more question and then we'll move into our last segment, which is a little bit funner, more upbeat, a little lighter. Yeah. How do you think like ordinary Texans can just be more involved with the county and understand what's happening at the county commissioner's court. Because like we said from the beginning, this is a part of government that I think really flies under the radar and we don't understand. So if we did want to understand and get a little bit more involved, what's the best way to do that? It's going to take, I'm big on educating, I'm big on sharing knowledge, and that's what we need to do. Those of us who understand the government and all the intricacies of the local municipalities, But we need to start just basically reaching out and being more present with our community. I talk to, whenever I meet people, I do just overload them with information. But we need elected officials to show up and not just for photo ops, to actually get into the community and have them understand how the community, how it works in both English and Spanish specifically, especially in my precinct. And I think sometimes some people are just so enclosed in their own circle of reality. They just don't look past that. They can't see the bigger picture of how like voting, for example, impacts your children. So I think making those connections, personal connections to county commissioner's role or city council's role or even school board, making those connections to help them better understand that. And if we could find like a head of a family to pass on that information, that would be great too, because that's how I get my information. If I can get the head of a family that the rest of the family will listen to, then I have a better chance in trying to educate more. But it's going to take elected officials getting more involved, and we need to hold some of our community responsible as well, trying to make them understand that this stuff is important. Voting is important. Going to school board meetings is important. And even starting small like PTA, just doing something just to stay in your community. Because what I learned during my research is that all the women that I interviewed, the Hispanic women who are in elected office, all of them were influenced by their family being involved in some kind of community, whether that be in politics or their church 
they were exposed to it at a very young age. So they grew up understanding the meaning of community and helping community. And so that's why I always say if we can instill that with young people or young families, you know, how important it is to get involved in your children's lives, then you'll understand and your child will have a better chance of being involved as an adult in their community if they see you doing it. That's the one thing pattern that I saw is that every one of these women that I talked to, their family was involved in community. So they understood it at a very young age. So we need to figure out a way to pull in our families and to get more involved, even at a very small level, like PTA, we just want them there. We want them present. And I think a lot of them are just intimidated. They don't want to look stupid. So there's lots of reasons, I think, where they they don't get involved, but it's going to take, it starts with elected officials and being involved in community and showing up and educating and encouraging them to educate their own family and children, and then things will get better. So that's what I believe. That's great. I've certainly lost that fear that I used to have. Like, I just don't know things. And so might as well admit it and ask the questions. Yeah. I definitely had this fear of like, if I show my cards, what are they going to think? And then it's like, you know what? They probably don't know either. And they probably appreciate us asking. So we're going to ask, Nicole. (laughs) (laughs) And I'm not afraid to ask. I don't know everything either. And I'm always asking and searching and just doing whatever I can to better inform myself. And like water is a huge issue here. And I grew up with my water being white and I didn't know that was an issue. And so we still have a lot of water issues in the county. So that's one area where I really want to educate myself with more. And I'll be the first. I don't know everything that is about water and how the infrastructure is at the county level. So that's an area where I want to learn a lot more about because water does impact health. I'm always learning every day. I'm learning something new. Yeah, you're at the police academy. That's also very cool. <laughs> it's interesting. I went to a driving range. It was part of a driving range at a gun range as part of the whole curriculum. With everything that's happened with guns, like I was like, I don't want to touch a gun. But I also felt it was important for me to understand the weapon. So I was petrified that whole experience <laughs> because we shot an AR-15. Now, and so I've been to Uvalde. And I've been down there twice. I visited the school. I've talked to an aunt of one of the children that passed. And, and I know how devastated that community is and what they're fighting for. But as part of me trying to understand all sides, that's why I'm doing that. Because I do want to understand that. I'm not saying I'm going to go out and buy one at all, because I don't think I should have one in my possession. But I understand it. And I understand why law enforcement uses it. For me, it's just all part of my me growing and understanding all aspects of what goes on here. Yeah, it's been actually great. I really love the class and I've gotten to know the police officers locally and, and I go to my first ride out this weekend. So that's going to be fun. I'm looking forward to that. I love all the learning that you're doing. It sounds so exciting. Okay, we to our last segment. And I don't know that we prepared you for this, but... <laughs> <laughs> Surprise! You'll have to think on your toes. It's called our attention mentions, where we mention something that has our attention right now. So it can be like a TV show, because I'm sure you have lots of time to watch TV right now, or a book or a podcast, maybe that you heard or even experience that has your attention. Nicole, do you have anything ready? Yeah, the season finale was last night. And I'm a big Game of Thrones fan. I watch it. I'll just keep it on like all day or whatever. (laughs) And I'll just listen because it's such a great show. So House of Dragons was my thing last night that I was watching. And 
the season finale was awesome. That's great. That's what I was thinking of too, for the same reason. But it's really interesting in that show. I don't know if you're watching it, Nicole, but it's all about this one woman who is supposed to become the heir to the throne. But they're like, no, it can't be her. She is a woman. We have to have the men. We're used to men in power and all the resistance she's up against. And it's just interesting because it's like, it's obviously a fictional show, but set in this like medieval context. And you're like, man, even today, we still have resistance to women and power. And yet you see in the show how her experience actually makes her a better leader. But they're so blind to that patriarchy, basically. Yeah, that's a good one. Yeah, I can relate with her being is different than a county commissioner. But <laughs> <laughs> it is interesting that that seems to be the driving theme. It's a woman trying to come to power who's being denied that because she's a woman. So I think it's pretty fitting considering our climate right now that I'm watching that show. So that's what's gotten my attention right now. I've got a really silly one. I found a show on Hulu called Hoard House Flippers. <laughs> so it's people who are house flippers who bought houses where hoarders were the last people living in them. So always step one is just cleaning the house of all of the stuff that is just piled. And of course, some of the things that people collect are a little disturbing, but it's really fun to watch the transformation of a house that is just overrun with stuff to something that's really beautiful and that you could not have envisioned when you first saw it. And also it takes place in Canada. So that's also just really interesting kind of culturally. It's so cold there in so many of these episodes. And so that's an interesting thing to relate to. And the accents, because they're always like house, a house. So Horrid House Flippers on Hulu is just a fun little good time. Yeah. Probably just remind me of how I need to do my house. Because when you're a candidate, you don't get to do all the things that like house cleaning. And I don't know who it was, but I saw a speech by a woman who said, they asked her, how do you do it all? And she says, I don't. If I'm succeeding in one thing, I'm failing in another. If I'm, she's a writer, that's what she is. So she's like, if I'm kicking ass in an episode, I'm missing my daughter's practice or game. I just connected so much with that speech of hers because she's, yeah, I'm doing all these things, but... Trust me, behind the scenes, not everything is getting done. And you just have to figure out how to make a creative balance and not beat yourself up over it. If you didn't get a chance to clean out the bathroom or do a load of laundry or whatever you, were, you know you need to do, it's okay. It's going to get done. You can always ask for help. And I think that's the other part sometimes with me is asking for help on things I normally do anyway asking someone else. I don't know what that is, but it's there that I'm dealing with at a personal level. But when I heard that speech, I just thought she's absolutely right. We just have to, again, not beat ourselves up over that and, and do our best. What I'm doing here is important and makes a difference. And I'm doing it for the right reasons. That's great. We appreciate it. And I will officially double mention House of the Dragon and Michelle... We wish you all the best of luck with your race. Even if you don't get this, which could happen, we hope not. We know you're going to do amazing things for your community because that's where your heart is. And we really appreciate that and see so much value. And thank you for being there for Hayes County and the people in your life. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. This was fun. It's been awesome. This is great. Yeah. 
Great. We're glad. <laughs> Yay. Thanks, Michelle. Great. Yes. Talk to you later. Thank you. Thank you, everybody, for joining me, Nicole Abshire, and my co-host, Claire Campos O'Neill, on Go Behind the Ballot. Hopefully, we've demystified some little portion of Texas politics, and we hope that you'll do more with us. Check out our website at www.gobehindtheballot.com, where you'll find links to all of our social media, and you will find our community. Let's join together and do more. We hope you'll let us know what is working, and we hope you'll join us next week. Thanks, everybody, and have a good one.